Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. By way of explanation, Naomi didn't do many actions this time around. The reason she came up, we, we were singing that song at home, and she wouldn't stop doing the actions, and she wouldn't let me eat dinner. She kept forcing me to do the actions and keep singing the song over and over again. So Candace eventually got a, a video of it, and I think sent it to Jessica, and that's why we had Naomi do it. She started off okay, but you guys are pretty scary. So I think she got up here and went, whoa, <laughs> it's not just me and dad anymore, it's, it's everybody else, and I think that intimidated her a little bit. But she can do them. This is me standing up for my daughter. She does know how to do the actions. <laughs> Mark chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 1 down to the end of verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. And the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's just pray again. Father, we are encouraged to have your word open before us this morning. We are encouraged that by your grace 
And by the teaching of Jesus, we can learn something about you, about ourselves, and about the gospel. We thank you that Jesus told this parable. We thank you that he he taught with parables to help people understand. And we pray now in this moment that you would help us understand. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is not the first parable in the gospel of Mark that we've been told. If we go back to last week and what we saw last week and and the accusations that Jesus received from the scribes, what we saw was they said he, he he is doing these things. He's casting out demons. He's performing all these miracles because of Beelzebul or by the prince of demons or by Satan. They, they accused him of doing that. And then Jesus told them this parable. It, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan is divided against himself, he will not stand. This makes no sense. It's not the first parable. That was the first parable that we saw. But what we hear at the beginning of chapter 4 is that he's been teaching people again. He's, he's still doing this. Again, it, Mark continually comes back to not the miracles, not the neat things that he does, although that is in there. It continually comes back to verse 1, and again, he began to teach. And he began to teach beside the sea. He is always teaching. And what we find out is that he's always teaching, and he's teaching them many things in parables. This isn't the only parable that he uses in his teaching. In fact, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll pick up in the rest of chapter 4, and there's some more parables in there, some other things that he spoke, that he taught to help people understand the truth. I brought a a visual aid. You can't really see it, but I wanted to read something from the beginning of it to help us understand what a parable is. This is a book called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. It's in the library. Parents, if you want to take it out, I encourage you to do so. It's very, very helpful. It was written by the late R.C. Sproul, And in the front, it says this, letter to parents. The priest with dirty clothes is my attempt to help children understand one of the most difficult concepts of Christianity. How are we made acceptable to God through through Jesus Christ's righteousness? It is my hope that as children begin to grasp the truth that righteousness comes through Christ, they simultaneously will grow in their understanding of the glory of God. R.C. Sproul wrote this book to help not just kids, but parents too. Help us as adults understand how do we communicate these truths. To help children understand how do I receive this truth. What does it mean? He wrote a parable. He wrote an illustrated story to help us understand a great gospel truth. That's what parables are. What's the Sunday school definition of a parable? Can anybody tell me? Heard somebody mutter something. It is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We've heard that before, right? Or, or a, a physical story with a spiritual meaning. That is, it's a story in the realm that we understand talking about a realm that we may not understand completely, that we need help, we need assist in understanding. And that's true. That is, that definition is true and helpful. But it's more than that. A parable is something that comes alongside. This book is designed to come alongside the scriptures to help you understand and teach, to help you communicate these truths that we see in the scriptures. It's not the story in and of itself. It's not the truth in and of itself, but it bears a resemblance. It points towards, it helps us understand the truth. Parables, the word parable, literally means to come alongside, to be alongside of. And in this context, it's a story. To come alongside to help us understand 
truth. And it's more than just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's meant to evoke a response. It's meant for you to respond to. So if you actually read this story, I'm going to give you a spoiler about the story. If you read the story, it's about a grandfather talking to his kids. And it's the grandfather telling a story. I think R.C. Sproul put himself in the place of the grandfather. How do I teach my, my grandkids this? And then it's the story of the priest with the dirty clothes. And then at the end, there's a little conversation between grandpa and the grandkids. And the parable is designed to get the kids to respond to the truth that they've heard. Parables are not just neat stories. We can read stories We can watch movies, we can read political cartoons, we can read the funnies, we can read all sorts of things and just look at them and go, huh, that was neat. But a political cartoon is actually supposed to do what? Get you riled up. It's meant to get you to think. It's drawn in a cartoonish form, but you're either meant to go, oh, that's right, I never saw that before, there's no way I could vote for that person or that party or whatever. Or there's the other side of the response and you could go, well, I don't think that's fair. That seems overly characterized. That doesn't seem true. That just seems unfair or whatever. It's it's designed to get you to respond, to think, to engage with the topic at hand. And it's meant to make you think and to act. Meant to make you respond, not just with an intellectual change, but with an actual change, a physical change, a change in mentality and a change in approach. Parables are challenges to change, not just to be enlightened, but a challenge to do. You're supposed to hear the story and go, okay, now what? Now that I've heard this, now that I understand better, what is my response? That's what parables are for. That's why Jesus teaches in parables. Verses 10 through 12, we're going to jump right down into the middle there. This is another another sandwich that Mark uses. We've got the, the parable itself... Then on the back end, the interpretation, the understanding of the parable. And then in between, we have this little section, three verses, 10, 11, and 12, with this quote from Isaiah 6. That's sandwiched in between, and that's, that's there to help us understand what's going on with not just this parable, but all of the parables. Verse 12 says, That they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. If you've got footnotes in your Bible, you, you can look down and you'll see. It'll show you, hopefully, the correct verse in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to flip to that. You can flip to that if you'd like too. Isaiah chapter 6. Most of us will be familiar with Isaiah 6 verse 3. Isaiah is seeing the vision of heaven. And he's in the presence of Yahweh, Lord Almighty. In verse 3, and they called to one another after seeing the seraphim with six wings all around the throne. They were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We're very familiar with the first seven verses of chapter 6. And we are hopefully familiar with what comes after. Verse 8, and I heard the voice, that is Isaiah, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their ears, see with their eyes, sorry, and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah is commissioned by the Lord himself to go and to do something. The result is going to be hardness of heart. 
It's going to be dullness of eyes. It's going to be deafness of ears. But what is he called to do? He's called to go preach the truth. He's called to go explain the truth. He is not called to go trick people. The Lord does not say go out and make the truth of who I am and the sin of the people as convoluted and confusing as possible. Isaiah, if you, if you actually explained to them what was going on, they would turn and be healed. So, I don't want that. Go out and trick them. Go out and be sneaky about it. That's not what he's called to do. He's called to go and proclaim the truth. And the truth, in turn, hardens hearts. That is, it's the proclamation of the truth that actually pushes the hard-hearted person further away. It deafens the ear even more. It blinds the eyes even more. It's not trickiness that blinds hearts, blinds eyes, and hardens hearts. It's the proclamation of the truth. And so when we go back to, to our passage in Mark, the parable of the sower, the parables themselves, are they tricky things that are meant to hide the truth? Are they confusing stories that are meant to blind us and confuse us so that we don't understand the truth of the gospel? Is that, is that what they are? Is that what Jesus was doing when he was teaching in parables? Is that what he's doing as he sends out the twelve, as he sends out the disciples to teach and proclaim the message of the kingdom? Is he telling them to hide it? I don't think so. Isaiah was called to preach the truth. Jesus, in turn, is also preaching the truth, and his disciples are going to be sent out to preach the truth. But be prepared. Not all will receive the truth with open arms. Parables are not teaching that requires special insight, that special key of knowledge, but it will appear as nothing more as cool stories to those who are on the outside. Jesus uses the language of insiders and outsiders to those on the outside and those on the inside. On the inside, even those on the inside, the disciples themselves didn't quite get it, right? Lord, what does this mean? But to those on the outside, it's nothing more than a cool story, a neat illustration, but it has no depth. It doesn't make sense. Think of some of the things that we we utilize in our own terminology as believers. Think of the hymn, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Now to those who profess and believe in Jesus Christ. Those are some of the sweetest words you will ever hear. Are they not? All of your sins washed away by the blood of the lamb, plunged beneath his, his blood, washed in the blood. Now to those who have no association with scriptures, no association with lamb sacrifice, no association with the cross, no understanding whatsoever of God and who he is and who they are, they look at a hymn like that. They look at those, those words on the page and they go, what in the world is that nonsense? It makes no sense to those on the outside. But to those on the inside, not perfect intelligence, but sweet stories that help encourage our hearts and build us up and grasp and believe the truth even more fully. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those who are opposed to the cross, to the message, the word of the cross, the message of the kingdom, it's utter foolishness and it makes no sense. 
But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Jesus tells this parable to help us understand something, to help us grasp something. He brings this alongside the truth as an aid. Not as a distraction, not as confusion, but as enlightenment to help us see and understand. And he wants us to react to it. He doesn't want us to sit back and go, cool story, bro. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is not the response that Jesus wants. He, he, is, he is using these parables to get you to act, to get you to respond. And what is Jesus wanting people to respond to? What is the purpose? What is the specific thing that Jesus is wanting us to think about, to process, and then to react to? We need to remember the context thus far. Where have we come through, through the first three chapters of Mark? We've had Jesus anointed by the Spirit of God. We've had Jesus proclaim the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That is the basic message that Jesus will then, over and over and over again, Mark will enunciate that Jesus teaches the crowds. The scribes come to him. They hear the same teaching. And they try to do a theological debate with Jesus. That doesn't work out. So they resort to slander. They resort to trying to destroy Jesus. They hear all of the same things. His family is hearing what he's saying and they're seeing the reaction of the crowds and of the scribes of the Pharisees and they're confused and they're worried and they think he's a nut. But what's changed from Jesus' message? From the very beginning of Mark chapter 1 up until where we are right now at the beginning of chapter 4, has Jesus' message changed? No. The message remains the same. So the question is, why is there such mixed reception to the same message of the kingdom? Why is it that you get some with such hostility towards the gospel message and not just wanting to discuss with Jesus, I'm not sure you get that, but actual accusations of blasphemy? How can he say that? Only, Only God can forgive sins. This is utter blasphemy. They hear the same message, and yet the scribes say this is blasphemy. The crowds go, wow, this is, this is wonderful and amazing, and they're continually following him, so much so that they've actually pushed Jesus out of the house. He's got, hey, he's had to go by the sea. Why did he go out by the sea? Well, presumably, you can fit crowds better out on the beach than you can in the house. He gets out onto the boat so he can project, so that more people can hear. Sound carries across the water, and it carries into the, the gulf and the valleys that are common around the Sea of Galilee. He could have spoken to thousands of people. Thousands of people could have easily heard what he was saying. And what they heard him say was the same message that the other crowds heard him say. That the scribes heard him say. That his family heard him say. That his disciples heard him say. And why is there the response of the disciples to drop everything? Leave everything behind. Leave their families. Leave their businesses. Leave their home. They leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Why is there that response And on the other end of the spectrum, the response of the Pharisees. That's what Jesus is drawing our attention to. Jesus is explaining to us, to his disciples, who he will send out very shortly, why this is the case. What's going on? It's the same message, same teaching, same truth. And yet, you get belief and you get hardness of heart. And the more you proclaim the truth, in some cases, the harder the heart becomes. Why is that? What's going on? Jesus gives this parable as an explanation of what comes before and in preparation of what's about to come. Different responses to the message of the kingdom. Let's look at these these four 
soils. These four different responses that we see to the seed. First one is the seed that falls on the path. That's verse 4 and verse 15. This seed gets thrown along the path and the birds come and they devour it. It's not very hard to understand in terms of physical um, illustration. We can see that. We can get that. Jesus enlightens us and he shows that the birds are actually the devil. Satan himself who comes and plucks the seeds off of the path. What we see is that the seed that falls on the path doesn't penetrate. It doesn't break through the soil. There's no root. There's no root at all. It's completely unreceptive to the seed. Jesus explains that for us as well. What is the seed? Well, it's the word. It's the message. It's the gospel. Completely unreceptive. It gets nowhere. The sower throws it out. It hits the soil, but it doesn't do anything. And if we look back, what we see is actually, this illustrates for us very, very clearly that these are like most of the scribes. They hear it, but it's almost like it bounces off their heads and it goes away. It's not there. Completely unreceptive to the message of the kingdom. They don't want it. It doesn't take root. Not all. If we jump over to to John, there's Nicodemus, right? He seems more receptive than most of the scribes. So not all of the scribes, but the vast majority, especially the the ones that come down from Jerusalem to start this, this blasphemy accusation, this he's possessed by the prince of demons accusation, they're not getting it at all. Completely unreceptive to the message of the kingdom. Then there's the seed that falls on the rocky ground. That's verses 5 and 6 and 16 and 17. And in this soil, the word appears to have taken root. It appears to have broken through the surface and gotten down because there's very quick growth. It's very voluminous. Voluminous. It's very big. (laughs) There seems to be a lot of it. You're not quite sure what's underneath the soil, but... If the outside is any indication of what's on the inside, this looks pretty good. But it's proven false when faced with tribulation and persecution. It's proven to have no root. It's proven to have no root in themselves. Why? Because there is no root in self. The root ought not to be in the seed itself, but in the soil. It ought to be deeply rooted, deeply planted, far beneath itself. But it has no root It has a reception of the gospel message with joy. That's interesting. Let me get on the right page here. And the ones who are sown on rocky ground, this is verse 16, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. That sounds pretty good, right? That sounds like they're on the right track. They receive it with joy, but not with faith. These are like most in the crowd. They spring up pretty quickly. They show up and they follow Jesus everywhere and they seem pretty excited, pretty joyous about what is going on in the ministry of Jesus. They seem pretty excited. They receive it with joy, but they don't receive it with faith. But it looks pretty good on the outside. There is the profession of faith, but the profession of faith is nothing without the actual possession of faith. That is, to say I believe is nothing if you don't actually believe. And the testing of true faith, of true belief. That is, faith should actually come with joy. 
Those who possess faith do have joy in the gospel. We have joy in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. But joy without faith is nothing. And these, these in the crowds, they saw, and they seemed to profess faith. They seemed pretty excited. And yet, as we read later on in the gospel accounts, many will fall away. Most of the crowd will disappear. Most, when they see the tribulation and the persecution from the religious leaders, from the scribes themselves, they will go, no, this isn't worth it. I'm out of here. They look like they've taken root, but they have nothing. The seed does not actually take root in them. Then there's the seed among the thorns. This is verse 7 and verses 18 through 19. The word also appears in this case to have taken root. But their allegiance is divided. We're told that the, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things enter in and choke out the word. It seems like they've, they've taken root. The seed actually gets in and, and something pops up. There's a plant there, but it's in and around all of these other things, these thorns, these thistles, these weeds. These weeds are described as distractions from actual growth, things that actually choke out growth. Their allegiance is divided between bearing fruit and all of these other things. What's interesting is that we're not told that this plant dies. The first one didn't even take root. There was no plant at all. The second one actually withers away because of the sun and dies. This one doesn't die. It's choked out and it proves unfruitful. That's the distinguishing mark between this one, which seems to have a plant. The plant is there. The plant doesn't disappear because of the sun or because of these other things. The plant remains, but there's no fruit if it's unfruitful, it's of no use to the farmer. It's of no use to the sower. It's of no use to anybody. A fruitless tree can provide shade. A fruitless seed that provides no grain, in this illustration, in this parable, in this context, is of absolutely no use whatsoever. These, I think Jesus, by giving this part of the parable, he's helping us see that these types of people are like Judas. These type of people appear to have real growth, appear to have real depth. Judas wandered with Jesus for three years. He learned from, heard the exact same message. Maybe even, well, in many contexts, he was privy to the explanation of the parable, just like Peter, James, John, Andrew, all those other guys. He was in there. He heard that. But what happened? Well, skipping ahead, what do we see? We see that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. He sold Jesus. He betrayed Jesus for money. The love of other things got in the way. His allegiance towards his Lord or towards the Lord of money, the Lord being money, it pulled him away. And what we see is that is, it is unfruitful. Then fourthly, we have the, the seed in the good soil. Verses 8 and verses 20. Those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Jesus repeats that twice. He repeats it in the parable and then repeats it in the explanation of the parable. And I think he does that because we may be tempted to think 
that the unfruitfulness is winning over the fruitfulness. That is, that the message might be failing in some capacity. There's four soils, three out of the four fail. That's not a good percentage, is it? That doesn't seem like that's working out too well. There's actually three seeds that, that do not take root, and there's three seeds that do. There's the seed that produces 30-fold, the seed that produces 60-fold, and the seed that produces 100-fold. That is, we think that maybe the wrong is winning, that evil is winning, that unreceptiveness to the gospel is winning, that Satan is winning by taking away the message of the gospel, that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of the human heart is actually winning over against the gospel truth and the gospel proclamation. And Jesus says, even by saying, no, 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 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It's not like it's supposed to be an even split down the middle. There's half Christian and half not. Half that receive and half that don't. That's not, that, that's not what the parable is teaching. It says, don't lose heart. Isaiah was called to preach. And what was he called to preach? The truth. And everywhere he went, he was going to receive unreceptiveness, hostility. Everywhere he went, he was told by the Lord, you're going to preach to deaf ears. Nobody will hear. And he cries out, how long, O Lord? How long? How, do, how long do I have to do this? Here's a better situation. Because of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel, the proclamation of the kingdom, there's actual hope. Now, we're not meant to go and split it right down the middle. But we look at this message and we go, there's actual hope in the message of the kingdom. What's the distinguishing mark between the fourth soil, the seed that takes root in the fourth soil, and the other seeds that don't take root, either in the first one, or take root but very shallowy, or take root in the wrong place, surrounded by the wrong things? What's the difference? All have heard the word. Some have appeared to have accepted it. The distinguishing mark of the fourth soil is that they actually bear fruit. This is the purpose of the seed. That is, the sower doesn't go out for any other purpose than to bear fruit from the seed that he sows. That is the point of putting seed in the ground. That is the point of sowing. It is to bear fruit. Quickly, let me just say a couple of things that this parable is not saying. This is what we need to be careful of when we come to parables, is that we can pull all of the wrong things out of it. If we miss the point of the parable, we can read into it all sorts of different things. This parable is not explaining why the soils are the way that they are. The parable is not explaining why the path, the soil on the path is the way that it is. Well, the donkeys came along and they walked on the path and this is the path that the farmer always took and so it's not really the path's fault that it didn't receive the message, that it didn't receive the seed. It's not its fault. It couldn't have really done any better. That's not what it's talking about. It's explaining why there's different conditions in the human heart. It's giving us insight into the, the hardness of the human heart. It's not explaining why the soils are the way that they are. This parable is also not claiming that the good soil is good because of anything in itself. That is, the good soil was more receptive to the seed because it was good, because there was something inherently good inside of itself that made it a better receptive tool to the message. It's not the point. It's not as if the soil, 
and we understand this to be representing those that receive the word and bear fruit. They were not wiser. They were not smarter. They did not have a better education. There's no difference between richness and poorness. It's not talking about, that is to say, the differences between these soils is not commented on because of economic status. There's no difference in terms of upbringing and the childhood experience that they had. That is not the point of this message. The point of the parable This parable is also not about the soil's ability to change themselves or make decisions. The good soil didn't actually have a decision in whether it got the seed at all. It didn't have a decision in whether it actually bore fruit at all. That's not the point. See, if we try to read into all of these different things, we're going to come out with a very wrong understanding of what Jesus is trying to teach us. We want to be careful that we don't get the wrong point. So what is the point? What is Jesus trying to teach us? What is he trying to help us see and understand? And I submit that this parable is addressing the issue of true discipleship. That is, what can we see on the outside and how do we know who is a true disciple of Jesus? It's pretty clear that the scribes are not disciples of Jesus. They want nothing to do with Jesus. They want to destroy him. What about the crowds? Are they true disciples? They seem pretty excited and they follow Jesus everywhere. What about those that actually profess faith, appear to actually have a root, there's a plant that grows up, they hang around for a while, it doesn't actually wither away, but they don't bear fruit. What about those like Judas? What about those that come and sit amongst us And they have every profession. On the outside, they may look good, but what's the distinguishing mark? What does it mean to be a true disciple? And it's actually meant not just for you to point at people on the outside and say, they or they may not be disciples. It's meant for you personally to look inwards. Am I a true disciple? Jesus doesn't tell this parable for you to start pointing the finger at everybody else. He tells it for you. So that you look at your own heart and you go, am I a true disciple of Jesus? What's the distinguishing mark? You bear fruit. That's what the other three soils lacked. No fruit. It's not a hard parable. When, when, when you break it down to, well, it's about discipleship. It's about those that follow Jesus and claim to love him, claim to love the message of the kingdom. We can write off the first one, right? They don't even claim to love the message. They don't even claim to love the gospel. But what about those that that are in there, they have that claim, they have that proclamation. What's the difference? Bear fruit. Many have heard. In fact, every category of soil got the seed. That is, every category of person in this case has heard the word. They heard the message and they heard it equally. It may seem stupid for a farmer to take seed and waste it on the path. It's clearly obvious that nothing's going to grow there. Again, not the point of the parable. It's not an agricultural statement on the ridiculousness of this sower wasting seed. They all heard the message. Some have appeared to have accepted it. But if there is not fruit, in this case, In this parable, what Jesus is trying to teach us, if there is no fruit in your life, you are not a disciple of Jesus. What kind of fruit? 
What kind of fruit must be displayed? What must be shown as growing in the life of an individual? Fruit according to its seed. Apples, apple seeds make apples. Blueberries make blueberries. Pears make pears. Insert whatever fruit you want, whatever grain you want. That seed bears that fruit. And Jesus tells us exactly what kind of seed it is. Therefore, exactly what kind of fruit you should be producing. The seed is the word. The type of fruit that you should be producing is rooted in the word, comes from the word. Not comes from your idea of what is good. Not comes from your idea of what is right or what is righteous or what should be done. It comes from the word. And we bear fruit by obeying what is in here. We bear fruit through obedience. Remember the end of last week. I think it was the end of last week. All my weeks are running together now. That Jesus is confronted by his family. He's confronted by those on the outside. His family on the outside. The crowds on the inside. Jesus, your family is out there and they're wanting to talk to you. They're wanting to get to you. And Jesus looks around at those at his feet. Again, a good reminder that just because it may be stereotypical of those in the crowds to have excitement but not real faith. Jesus identifies some in the crowd sitting around his feet as having true faith. Even though it may be typical, it is not universal. And he looks around at those sitting around his feet and he says, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my mother, my brother and sister and mother. That is, what is the fruit of the word? What is the fruit of the seed of the word that has taken root in our hearts? What is that supposed to produce? It's supposed to produce obedience to God himself, to the things that he's called us to do. It's not instant perfection. Jesus uses agricultural and growth parables a lot. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we'll see that he actually uses a seed parable a few times. It's the mustard seed again that comes up, right? The seed parable, the growth parable will come up over and over and over again. Why? Because it's not instant perfection. It's a process, but there's growth. It's not equal growth either. It's not the same growth at the same rate for every individual. There's a 30-fold and a 60-fold and a 100-fold. And the 30-fold doesn't have the right, again, this is stretching the parable, to look at the 100-fold and go, well, they're far more valuable to the farmer than I am. What's the point? Let let the 100-fold get out in front here. Let the 60-fold take the reins for a little bit. You know, I'm just a wee old two-fold. It's not the size of the fruit It's not the capacity of the fruit and it's not the quickness of the fruit being shown. It's are you bearing fruit? Are you following the will of God in obedience to him? We bear fruit by obeying. And we obey by participating in the things that he's called us to do. We obey by loving the things he's called us to love, by hating the things he's called us to hate. That we obey by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. We obey by producing the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit being indwelt and planted in us. What kind of fruit comes from that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things, absolutely. But summed up in one 
basic, easy to take home sentence, obedience to Christ. How do you bear fruit? How do I know if I am walking faithfully with Jesus? How do I know if I'm a true disciple? Hear this message. Repent and believe. Accept that message and act on it. Bear fruit. The point of this parable as well, and I'll say this, and then we'll participate in the Lord's Supper together. The point of the parable is also not to spend every waking moment worrying about what seed that you are, to worry about what soil you are. What if I am? What, what if I am the, the rocky soil? What if I am that one? I, th- I think I'm this one, but I, I might be that one. What if at the end of my life, I might be something different than I thought? Jesus does not tell this parable to instill fear into the hearts of his disciples. The basic call goes out to every soil. Hear, accept, and bear fruit. That is, if you're worried, if you might not be the good soil, for whatever reason, maybe you've stretched the parable in ways it's not supposed to go, I tell you right now that if you believe the message of the kingdom and start walking in obedience to Jesus Christ, you are his disciple. That's the message that we have. Don't take the parable any further than it, than it takes us. The same message needs to be accepted by every person who has ears to hear. Have you heard that message? Have you accepted it? You may nod your head and say, yes, I've heard and I've accepted. And it's not necessarily, although it, it will be my job in some cases as a pastor to point at the lives of people and say, you are not bearing fruit in line with the message that you've said has taken root in your heart. You ought to bear fruit. It is meant to be a message that you take and look at your own heart and go, Lord, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know how far along this growth process I am. As we stated last year, last year, last week, as Rick kindly pointed out, I am one-third the age, maybe the man, of a certain gentleman who is 90. That may be true in terms of age. And there is growth that comes with age. And every day, are you producing more fruit? Not perfection, not instantly, but a little bit more. Have you rooted yourself in the word? And are you producing seed according to the kind that has been planted in your heart, the word of Jesus Christ. We bear fruit by obeying. We bear fruit by obeying and doing the things that the Lord has called us to do. One of those things that he's called us to do is to remember him at the table. And I can tell you this morning that if you participate in communion, if you are peeling back that plastic fumbling with that thing to make sure you don't peel the juice before you get the little wafer. As we do this together, we are bearing fruit. We are obeying him. I'm going to invite you to take a moment to look not so much at your own heart. I think we do that too often. Yes, assess your own heart, but very quickly turn to the heart of Jesus. Very quickly turn to the message of the cross Return to the foot of the cross and hear that message proclaimed. Salvation for those who repent and believe.